just so you guys know, like there's not there's nothing you can really can't ask me. You know, I, honestly, like if your follow up questions, you go for it. Whatever you see, you go. Um, you're gonna get a different. Oh, we just lost Pep. Um, such uh-oh. a such a liability yeah. that guy. I know, I know, a technical <laughs> liability. Every sports fan has an opinion. Well, these are ours. Ours. Welcome to Brock and Pep's unsportsmanlike convo. And here are your hosts, Brock Fleming and Pep Cariotti. Hello, everybody. It is April 15th. I don't know what day that is in terms of the quarantine or self-isolation, but uh, it's about a week past when we start getting stir-crazy because I am going a little bit bananas. Um, Pep, I don't know how you're doing. Obviously, uh, connection issues have been going back and forth, so hopefully those are rectified now. But, uh, you know, you're staying alive, you're staying busy, staying uh, entertained, I guess, during this time. Dude, I'm just trying to stay healthy. I'm just trying to get out there. You know, I live on the Quebec side. I'm not sure that everybody knows where I where I live or where I'm situated, but I'm on the Gatineau side, just a few minutes from downtown Ottawa. So getting around is a little tricky because most of my friends and family uh, are on the uh, the other side of the bridge. So mm-hmm. um, it's tough. You know, it's it's been tough. I can't even, as a pedestrian, you can't even walk across the bridges now. So um, they've laid down the law and I'm, I'm all for it. You know, it's uh, safety first. But uh, it's made life a little inconvenient while we're t- I'm trying to maintain some exercise and, you know, just getting out for a run. It's a beautiful sunny day today. I, you know, have thoughts about get, getting out there and going for a walk. Or, but, you know, it's – I don't I, – if this goes into the summer. So you can't, you can't take a jog just in Quebec? It's got to be an Ontario jog or what is that? You can ha- go out. Have you jogged in, have you jogged in Quebec? I thought you should have said, have you jogged in 20 years? No, I haven't. (laughs) Anyway, regardless, we're going stir crazy. Uh, No sports are on, but we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Sports related, a very Ottawa sports related superstar CFL alum. Glenn Kalka is with us today. Glenn, how you doing? I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being on. How are you doing oh, with this whole uh, self-isolation COVID thing? Uh, challenging, like uh, with everybody, I'm sure. Um, you know, you put uh, kids in the mix, and I have a 15- and 16-year-old teenagers here. Uh, so, uh, and as I said, uh, I've been here for about a month with them, and I still don't speak teenage, so <laughs> they do their thing, I do mine. Uh, I have my dog, and uh, so dog walks are obviously a good thing at this point in time. The dog's never been healthier, as a matter of fact. Uh, so it, it's it's a matter of coping. You know, you, you do the best you can with what you have. And uh, say the V, I think there is a small glimmer of a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yeah, you guys were talking earlier about this, you know, heading past into the summer. And I don't know if it's necessary or I hope it's not, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, yeah, I think if everybody does their part, obviously we can get through this a little bit quicker, but... Um, you said you have teenagers at home. Is it hard to keep them at home? Like, are they just dying to get out with their friends? Yeah, they are, but they both work, uh, actually in the, at a grocery store. Oh, geez. so All right. uh, they're getting three, four or five shifts a week. And, uh, so that's really preoccupying them. Uh, and that's a blessing for sure because they're not quite, I got to go let my dog in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to be one, three seconds. My dog's barking live radio here. Here we go. Hang Sorry. on one second. <laughs> We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
sorry about that, gentlemen. All right, he, and he's back. He would not, he would not left us alone. <laughs> That's all good. All right, That's amazing. Go lay down. That, is that Pierre? You want to go lay down? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Looks, a little, looks, a little, looks a little tired. <laughs> I'm pretty tired from this all the technical difficulties over here. Yes. All oh, right. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully everybody stays healthy, stays safe, and uh, this won't go too yeah. far into the summer. But have they put in those uh, barriers, those plastic barriers at the at the the cashiers uh, where, oh, yeah. where, they, where they check out the groceries? Oh yeah, definitely. And that's the one thing I want to say about this whole thing is, is why I do believe there's going to be a light at the inside of this tunnel is I really don't see people abusing the, the distancing. I see people only honoring the distancing and then some, uh, I, I think if anything, people are over exaggerating how far we need to stay apart, which is a good thing at this point. Right. Um, uh, I, I haven't seen, and even talking to my kids who are frontline, if you will, at a grocery store, um, you know, there's still that safe distance. People understand the concept. If they don't, they get reminded really quickly because uh, the, the grocery stores are taking this very seriously. Uh, they have to. They get one case in a grocery store. They got to shut the doors for whatever it is, 24, 48 hours and, and, and hire a whole lot of cleaning staffs to come in. And anyways, that being said, uh, with proper precautions and a whole lot of common sense, uh, you know, the washing of the hands, cutting things down by 50 percent. I mean, why wouldn't you? Like, it just blows my mind if people aren't doing that five or six times a day. Um, you know, that kind of stuff, I think, will uh, will give us, like I say, that, that light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, totally agree. I think there's been a lot of actual good things that come out of this moving forward, provided we learn our lessons from it. And, uh, yeah, take it to the next level. I, none none yeah. of my friends are going and they're hanging out with other people or visiting and stuff like that. So it's great. It's 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 perfect. But, uh, yeah, everybody has to do their part. Okay. Glenn, you have quite the extensive sports background, and most people in Ottawa will know you from your CFL, lengthy CFL all-star career that obviously culminated in Ottawa in terms of uh, when you retired. Uh, But you played for a variety of different teams, and you came in the league fairly young. Uh, What, I guess would be your best or overall CFL memory? Like, what are you taking from your experience with the CFL? Oh, how good the Gleiberman family was for this whole organization and, <laughs> and the league itself. Uh, you know, all the good notes that you want to just put a tag on and say, I was there. Uh, uh, no, I meditate every day to get that stuff out of my brain. Uh, <laughs> I have to go back to the, you know, the great cup that we lost, you know, uh, unfortunately uh, it was early in my career, fortunately or unfortunately it was early in my career, uh, with the Argos against the Eskimos and mm-hmm. BC plates and, um, the lead changed hands. Uh, Oh, good Lord. Some eight or nine times. Uh, I remember the game so vividly. It's amazing. Hey guys, uh, and, and Brock and, and Pep, you guys can attest to this is, you know, when you do remember certain games, like I remember how I felt, if my stomach was upset, you know what I mean? It, yeah. it brings you back to the moment. And uh, I'm still blessed with that type of a, a memory that I can still use. So in that game itself, um, the reason why I talk about it, because I remember sacking Matt Dunnigan and myself in the second quarter, and we were destroying them as a defense. Toronto Argonauts uh, defensive line, we had myself, Rodney Harding, we had Harold Hallman, Gerald mm. Bayless, um, Rod Sellers was a rush end for us. Um, myself and, and uh, a couple other backups that were just outstanding. 
and we just brought the heat so much that Matt Dunnigan, I got to him. He fumbles the ball on the sack. We scoop it up, and Tank Landry, our, a linebacker for us, runs for tank, yeah. six points. Big Tank. When he showed up, he was good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when we found him, he was fantastic. Uh, but, uh, you know, so right then we could have went into the half uh, 14 points up. But then Bob Obilovich, uh, in his infamous wisdom, decides that it's a good idea to try a, a 49 or 51-yard field goal last play of the half. And guess who's in the end zone receiving it is uh, Henry Gizmo Williams. One of the best the returners guy. ever, yep. Yeah, he's run back more kickoffs and punts in uh, anybody else in the CFL. I think, I think still to this day. Uh, if he, he might had, be pro football. He might hold a pro football record for punt returns. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was that devastating on the big field. He was just so much harder than mm. uh, south of the border when they can just uh, narrow him down into the, into the little hallway that, uh, that they play in. Uh, but that being said, uh, he runs it back. That's the last play of the half. So that gives them some hope. And then uh, me putting Damon, uh, taking Matt Dunnigan out of the game, put Damon Allen in the game and Damon Allen ended up getting MVP. Uh, he wouldn't have had that shot if I wouldn't have sacked Dunnigan. So I always joked, with John Manrich and a couple of buddies, I said, you guys should have sized me up for a ring because if I would take Matt Dunnigan out of the game, we probably would have won that game. Yeah. Who knew though at that time, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. No, there was one bootleg. I was a backside end. Not that you remember these things very vividly, but uh, Damon Allen, you know, the way he was, you know, handoff inside, handoff inside. So you just want to make the play, make the play, make the play. And then he takes a naked boot and he, you know, ran to the three yard line with that stride that doesn't look like he's even trying. <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. running as fast and he just like loping along uh, effortlessly. Uh, he was a star. He was a star for a good reason. Uh, you know, it was an honor to play against guys like that. But uh, that game, when Jerry Cork kicked that 49 yard field goal or whatever it was to wrap this game up, guys, it was, uh, I-, I thought we had finally stopped them as a defense. There goes Pep. Um, I thought that we finally had stopped them as a defense, uh, and Jerry Cork ended up uh, with a 49-yard field goal, uh, I think, to beat us 38-36, if I remember correctly. Uh, second last player, 30 seconds left in the game. Uh, yeah, you don't get a chance to get back there, uh, but I think it was a highlight when you get to play in front of 55,000 or whatever it was at the time. Yeah, no doubt. And you're like you said, it was early in your career, so at the time you probably thought, hey, you know, it's, it wasn't that hard to get here or this early. I'm going to have another shot because I'm going to play for so many years. But unfortunately, you never really got that shot, right? No, and that's it. Uh, if I would have stayed put in Toronto and, you know, all these ifs, ands, or buts were candy and nuts and all those famous sayings. Uh, that being said, if I would have stayed in Toronto, I probably would have got a couple more cracks. But uh, it just seemed like everywhere I left, uh, they were almost dumped. They were almost destined to go to the Great Cup right after I left. Uh, after the rest of the uh, eight or nine years that I ended up playing, and you had an opportunity of playing later on with uh, Damon Allen in Ottawa, right? He, you guys were Correct. teammates at some point. I don't Correct. think he, he never seemed to have that same success in Ottawa as he did in some of the other places. Uh, no. But I mean, you know, did he ever thank you for uh, making his career? Because if you didn't <laughs> give him that opportunity, maybe he wouldn't have been there. He should have. He should have for sure. But no, he didn't really mention too much about it uh, other than uh, showed me the ring a couple times. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, you played uh, for uh, Matthews, right? The the coach in Toronto? Correct. Well, and- actually, I didn't actually play for Don because this is how I ended up in Ottawa. Okay. Uh, I was trying to get a tryout in the NFL. I had just done, uh, done the bench press record at 225, uh, 53 Very times. Very impressive, yeah. <laughs> 
and, and that broke even the NFL record. So um, I thought I could get at least a tryout in the States, and I was a free agent at that time. Don Matthews just came in as our new head coach. Um, mm. So as it turned out, I didn't get a tryout, and I couldn't understand why. I couldn't even get a look. Like I couldn't even get a you know run a 40 time, and they were doing as they would with hundreds and hundreds of guys. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't even get that tryout. Um, long story short, Don Matthews, head coach of Toronto Argonauts, and myself had the same agent. And he wasn't shopping me down south because Don Matthews wanted me to land back in Toronto. Who was and, your agent? Uh, it was Gil Scott. Gil Scott, yes. Yeah, okay. it was Gil Scott at the time. And uh, I didn't find out that laughter. But then Ottawa called me up and said, you know what? We're making a free agency rating, something that's never been done in the league before. Uh, they offered me $230,000 over three years, which is probably more money than I ever thought I'd make in the CFL. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and even today's standards, it's not as much, but still uh, back then, that, that was quite a bit of money, substantial for a Canadian defensive line. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, so I grabbed it and, and that's when I stayed. And then I probably went past my prime years, you know, by the time I ended up my stay here in Ottawa for the five years that I was here. You know, then I was past my prime and, and missed that boat, so to speak. Uh, yeah. It sailed. It already sailed. Now I know we're going to get into it later. Uh, you did. Ha- you have some, um, you know, post concussion type syndromes that you're dealing with, and we will talk about that. Uh, but just for the uh, Ottawa football team, um, you, I read somewhere that you thought that the best uniforms in Ottawa were the flaming R and the Tampa Bay sort of gold helmet, red things. Would you attribute that to post-concussion syndrome stuff? <laughs> well, the fact that I didn't know which jersey we were wearing that week, but, uh, you know, it was always a surprise. Had to look at your teammates, make sure you didn't tackle your buddy next to you. Uh, no, I liked, I liked, I remember that, uh, Buccaneer they had on the side of the helmet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I would like, liked about it was they had the red jerseys, the home jerseys with a dark red with the gold pants mm. now that was styling that was styling <laughs> i mean other than the flaming r's i was like geez really the r's are on fire great you know uh, <laughs> fantastic they the gleebrins want to put a gopher on the side of our helmet so at least that didn't happen the gleebermans i'm pretty sure my brother has a shreveport pirates helmet from yeah. the Gleberman's office, somehow there was a. Anyway, I don't know the st- the story. Right. He'll have to tell it, but he's got that somewhere. Yeah, um, that'd be a good item because they didn't last too long. Again. No, not uh, at they all. Had the touch. They had the Midas touch that family. My last Renegades experience was, I guess, like well, was Gleberman related. They had a Mardi Gras night <laughs> on on the same night as Family Day. Beads for boobs. <laughs> Beads for boobs. Let's do that. On and also, wasn't that the day that they were naming, renaming the stadium for Frank Clare? So Frank Clare's wife was there. At the time. Yep. I'm serious. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing. I have to, you have to set the whole stage. It was a one o'clock game, and it was family day as well. So the bottom bowl was like family and kids and chips and hot dogs, and then the upper bowl was Mardi Gras. Uh, yeah. beads, beads for boobs. And I, it was, I remember I, I didn't go to too many renegades games cause they weren't very good, but, uh, wow. I, you know, and I, I felt bad. Joe Papa was their coach. Uh-huh. Joe yeah. Papa was the coach and it was yeah. just an awkward scene. He looked uncomfortable and yeah. wow. 
players, we, this is, you know, as much as I was uh, on, the, on the edge of being uh, off balance myself in a lot of cases, this was not the kind of sound environment that you wanted to have for a, pre, a pro franchise experience is, is you're, you're looking up and seeing who's flashing their, their, their knockers, uh, you know, up on the south side during a, during a football game. And that becomes a heck of a lot bigger of an issue than the football game itself. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it seeped into the locker room on, on a regular basis. And, really, yeah. and it's fantastic. You can laugh about it now, but you can imagine if that was the owner, you know, uh, of your sports franchise and he thought that was a good idea. Uh, and the disrespect uh, uh, just to the league and to, to, to um, sorry, I forget who they renamed the stadium for. Um, Frank Clare. Frank Clare, thank you. Uh, his wife was there and just the whole disrespect. I thought having kids there. Um, you know, you have to laugh about it, but man, it was just ridiculous. It was bad, yeah. really bad. Yeah, I, re- I remember hearing a clip. I think it was actually a quote from you, and you had said that there were a lot of ta- there was a lot of talent on the team. It's just that y- y- it's, it was hard to give a shit when you know you'd put your you put your all out effort in, but you weren't sure you could trust the guys beside you to, to do the same. So that became a culture of like, well, if he doesn't care, why the hell am I going to care? And, you know, that just trickled down and, you know, the result was, you know, some not very successful seasons. But uh, is that, I think I saw that was a quote from you. And is that something that uh, didn't exist with other franchises at the time? Was it a one in eight or was it, like who was the best franchise in the CFL when it came to the model, when it came to guys going in knowing, OK, we're all business here. Uh, you know, when you think about the 80s and 90s, you know, you think about the Eskimos who always had solid franchises. Um, the Argonauts for a while. So what happened? Like what went wrong? Was it, is it a leadership principle? Is it like the top down, the Glibermans to the coach, to the players or. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I started Edmonton. So I was there just exactly after those five great cups in a row. And I remember the tension in those locker rooms. Uh, I was a, what, 17, 18, 18 year old, 19 year old going to my second football training camp I'd ever been to in my life. And it was the Eskimo training camp and, and Dan Kepley was still there as a player. Uh, they still had Tommy Towns. They still had David Boone on the defensive line. Um, they still had all these legends that just won this city five great cups. But they also were smart enough to realize that these guys were tradable at that time, still worth something. And uh, they started to make moves that were not popular amongst the veteran players. So it made it very, very difficult to be a rookie. Uh, never mind somebody who didn't know his way or have any idea really uh, of what I was doing. Bottom line, I kept it simple. Get off the ball, uh, beat the guy in front of you, and get to the quarterback. Um, the beauty of defensive line, it allows a great athlete to excel very quickly because of the simplification of the game. It's literally just a seek and destroy uh, type of a mission uh, on a play-by-play basis and then destroy the will of the man in front of you. Uh, defeat him so that you can own him for that third and fourth quarter uh, when the game's on the line. And and those are things you used to set up and, and work at that whole game just to beat them physically so that mentally you could own him in that second half. So uh, that being said, um, but getting back to your question as far as does it leak into the locker rooms and is it because of the the, the, the Liebermans and those kind of organizations that things fall off the, the handle? Yes, I mean, it, it does, guys. I mean, true, true and simple, uh, it stems from the top. I mean, you look at any of the big corporations, they're led well. Uh, they have good people that run them. They have good people underneath those people. Uh, where they have weaknesses, they put good people because they know that they're smart enough and secure enough in their own selves to make sure that they, they have complementary people around them. Uh, that was not the case when they brought in Lonnie at uh, what, I don't even know if he was 35 at the time, not even. He was mm-hmm. younger than me, I 
think, uh, uh, you know, started dating cheerleaders and, and then the whole Dutch <laughs> family right. thing. Uh, you talk about why, you know, players became introverted. And this was really what pushed the buttons for me is when you saw that the ownership had to do with who was going to play on the field. And they're trying to sit a guy like John Kropke, who I've battled with for the last three years, uh, you know, and gone to war with for the last three years and sit him just because they want to try Dexter Manley. You know, and Dexter Manley didn't even want to play. He wasn't even here to play football. Really? He came here. Somebody offered him money in a condo, and he was a drug addict at the time. Still, God bless him. I uh, hope he's better. Does he pass now? Ooh. Is he so- no, I don't think so. No, they did. They did a NFL one of those football life uh, football lives uh, that they post on the NFL Network, and they did one on Dexter Manley, and he's he says he's he clean. He says he's been clean for a while, and he's uh, I think he's actually. Um, yeah, I mean, his it was actually a pretty moving NFL football life. One of the one of the more moving ones. He's had a tough go, and he had uh, I think he had a cyst on his brain. He has a scar across his his head that goes from his eye to the back of his head. So he had to deal with that as a as I think as a player, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, yeah, and and, and you know what? I didn't say his name disrespectfully, and I hope that didn't come across as as being disrespectful. Uh, but here you had a player who did not want to play. He, his, his days were done uh, and they were still trying to get him in the lineup. All they would ask him to do after practice would be rush against the young Canadian offensive lineman and to do 10 pass rushes in a row. And then they'd play him in the game and he would get to like five pass rushes in a row and he hadn't done any cardio or anything. And he'd quit. He wouldn't even do the minimum just to get in the game. And they would still replace him mm-hmm. uh, for John Kropke or somebody like that. Who's earned their keep. Uh, for a number of years, and we actually had uh, Jim Daly, our our defensive line coach, walk mm. off of, uh, walk off the team, and uh, we had no defensive line coach for the last two games of the season. Really? He uh, he bad. said, "Yeah, I said if you're going to do that, and and you're going to trump my decision as a defensive line coach, and I can't tell you who I want to play, then I don't want to be here." And he left. He actually left because of that. So turmoil is uh, an understatement um and, and that's where that that myopic uh, uh, you had to survive mentality came in and in a team sport that's the worst thing you can have you know you just grab three or four of your good buddies around you and say okay this is how we're going to get through this not this is how we're going to win football games um so it's not the way you want to play football for sure um i love my years here i met my wife here i wouldn't have my beautiful children if i wasn't have been here but as far as my football career is here I wasted five years. I mean, there were probably two years here. I remember I should have known when in my second year here, we went nine and nine and everybody was celebrating like we'd won the great cup because <laughs> the first 500 season they'd had in like 19 years. I should have realized then I should have got out the door, but uh, I didn't. And uh, the rest speaks for itself. Uh, as far as history is concerned, I got great memories here. Uh, the South Siders, the, the Ottawa fans that would put up with all this stuff going on and still come out, like you said, Pep, uh, and still have some fond memories of some players. Um, we played literally just for that. And uh, it got to the point where that's uh, the only thing you could feed off of uh, was what you could bring the crowd for and, and what you could do for the crowd. And and uh, that's a sad testament in a, in a team sport where you're trying to got, you know, some 36 to 40 guys trying to execute things yeah. on the same page. It just doesn't work. What- now- we could literally do a whole podcast on on your time in Ottawa, like the 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 football the football career in Ottawa, because it was it was there was a lot to talk about. Um, who who was your quarterback at the time? Was it it was Damon Allen quarterback or was it was it David Archer? Was it? We had the Damon Allen and the, I remember Bo, Hobart uh, scandal thing. They told mm. Hobart 
Damon, because this was the only place that uh, Damon, I think, played 21, 22 years where he did not play well. Like he, I think he threw just as many interceptions as he did touchdown passes and just un Damon Allen like ish numbers uh, here in Ottawa because it was Ottawa. Uh, but that being said, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, and quarterbacks, the uh, whole different quarterbacks that had played. Yeah, so how many do we have here? Oh my goodness, John can Jim. Uh, that was back to Toronto. Uh, you know, you have to mind my this is my brain injury stuff. Oh, no, no worry, bits and pieces flashing over. Um, uh, we had who I'm just trying to think, we didn't have anybody that was good enough to stay here for any period. Was Crawley of time. there at that time? Was it was yeah, Crawley, Crawley one of them? For a small period of time, mostly as a backup, came in yeah. for a few games. They'd always give you that try, and then he, you know, he wouldn't do well, so they just dismiss, uh, and then bring in all everybody that uh, would not be successful for the most part. It uh, seemed to be they not- brought in guys they they thought would do well, or like you know, the flash of the pan. They had some success for a real brief stint somewhere else, and they say, "Oh, we're going to give you money," and, and, you, and you show up. It's almost like taking those shots on guys, thinking that they're the next. Uh, superstar, and then they just fizzle out here. It seemed yeah. to be what they were doing. Well, and I think what they didn't do is they were drafting a lot of football players, and they weren't drafting good people. Uh, yeah. And um, you know, it sounds so hokey to say that, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, even if you're going to war, you want to go to war with good people. Uh, you want to go to war with people that have a conscience, uh, that care about others, and are compassionate. Um, and uh, when you're not around those kind of people, yeah, you do introvert yourself just for self-preservation, uh, yeah. just to, so you can survive yourself uh, and, and have some success uh, moderately uh, on your own just because you had pride and pride in what you did. Uh, you know, that's uh, the one thing I used to hopefully hang on to is – uh, you know, always trying to play to your best stability, regardless of the situations. Well, that, like you said, it's an attitude that, that stems from the top. And so if you're not bringing in quality guys because the ownership has their own mentality and their own maybe lack of qualities as well, uh, then it stems down. Now, Ottawa, like you said, it was almost like a band of misfits. There's a lot of characters in that Ottawa locker room. Who are some of your fondest characters or maybe the funnest guys in the locker room that you're like, you know what, this guy's crazy, but he's a lot of fun or he brings some excitement to the, to the, the mundane because we're not winning. Yeah. Um, well, my best friend was John Mandrich and, and, uh, he was here and, uh, was, really the reason why I signed here uh, because he was also part of that free agency rating mm-hmm. uh, of players that were in that group. And uh, Johnny called me and said, listen, I got I'm going to Ottawa. You got a chance to come, come because then we get a chance to play together. And we missed that chance playing together in Edmonton because I got loaned to the Alouettes and then the Alouettes folded. So they couldn't say, I just loaned the Glenn to the Alouettes and I got back. So I ended up in the dispersal draft and then ended up in Toronto. So this was our chance as far as uh, best, my best friend, to play with my best friend, and that's why I came here uh, to play. It, it was ironic that Johnny ended up uh, passing, uh, you know, some three, four years later uh, with me and, and uh, his uh, fiance Lissetta. Um, mm-hmm. And he uh, died of skin cancer, you know, biggest man in the world, and uh, 310 pounds of him, and he had a little wart on his finger, and, and uh, that wart turned to a blister. And then uh, he was dead in seven months after that. Really? Completely. He, uh, he died. I was feeding him soup, and um, he, he was losing his balance all the time, and he just slumped forward. And I remember I just pushed him back up, and by the time I pushed him back up, I, he, I knew he hadn't taken a breath yet. And so, anyways, uh, oh. he was dead on, dead on the spot. So if you're going to go, it's the way to go. 
uh, it, it was quick. And um, but uh, at 31 years old, I think he was. It was uh, way way too young for a very compassionate young man for sure. And and uh, and as I said, that was my best friend. Uh, at the time, and uh, it was it was a heavy blow to me as a person, and I, not, and I didn't realize it, and I just kind of skipped through life after that. But I didn't have that yeah. solid anchor. I didn't have that guy that would look me square in the eye sometimes and say, "Glenn, what are you doing? You know, yeah, it's just stupid. Don't do that." And uh, that helps when you have guys like that that'll keep you grounded once in a while. And uh, I miss him dearly. Rip him, uh, God rest his soul. And uh, I think of him often. Think of him often. Wow, I'd never heard yeah. that story before. Yeah, yeah, he uh, while he was a rougher, he was last game, he, or last uh, jersey he wore was, uh, I think, the flaming R's actually. Uh, yeah. and, uh, but uh, that, was a, that was a passionate man. You talk about a guy that was a character and make an influence on a team, both offensively and defensively. Know everybody's name, uh, understand who the equipment managers and how important they were to a team. Uh, a guy like that was priceless. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the best athlete in the world, but man, he would run through walls for you if he could. He would do whatever it took uh, to, to to get the job done. And uh, and a great great guy in the locker room, uh, and a great friend too. And, and uh, love him, miss him very much. But um, he was taken way too early, that's for sure. But uh, I think about him often. Well, I'm sorry to hear that story. I, you know, you talk about filling your roster with character guys over just the best player on the on the board and uh, i think brock and i on a couple of podcasts ago i can't remember what the topic was but i had mentioned something about the pittsburgh penguins and their whole draft uh, strategy philosophy is yeah do we want guys with skill of course but they have to have that balance of skill and character and and not coming into the locker room and disrupting basically what's a championship team every single every single year they draft on character more than they do on on skill. And I just read an article the other day about Brian Burke. Uh, he mentioned they, you know, interviewing Neil Yakupov uh, pre-draft, and he said we got up from that meeting and we wanted to punch the kid because he was smirky and he was asking stupid questions. And so, you know, clearly Edmonton had the first round pick for four or five years in a row, and they did nothing with those guys drafting guys like Yakupov. So, you know, when you look at building character guys, how do you think the current Ottawa team is doing in terms of, you know, getting character guys in? Are they solid from the top down character wise at the very least? You know, we don't know about the money aspect, but character wise. Yeah. I, I honestly be, I have to be bluntly honest with you guys. I don't follow them very much anymore. Um, I, I really, uh, when they had the championship team and they lost uh, your quarterback, uh, two of your best receivers and I think your your other running back or or, or just the nucleus of your whole team um I, I just couldn't understand that I, I could not understand how in a league where you don't have to go spend five six million dollars to mm-hmm. you know extra to go get somebody even hundreds of thousands more you don't have to do that uh how they ended up losing that nucleus so at the time you didn't know whether that fell on the coach's shoulders uh, or that fell on the general manager's shoulders I, I think when you look back you have to say the general manager pulled the pin on, on probably a few of those deals as far as not maybe shelling out some extra dollars to keep some guys around, uh, not realizing there again, we talked about it earlier, how hard it is to get back to the cup. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean to a franchise? Oh, my good Lord. Uh, it was the third year in the league, I think, and they went, they got to the cup alone. And, and, and that for around here was exactly what this area needed. They started off exactly like they should have. 
they 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 showed people what they could do rather mm-hmm. than talked about what they could do and they actually went and had success early uh with local ownership which i always said it had to be done uh and, and got good good on them but from that point on guys uh egos got in the way obviously and that's when i usually just distance myself i don't have time for that anymore you're the big boy stuff and and you're bigger i'm bigger than you are or you're more important than i am or whatever at the end of the day does it get it done they haven't done squats since then. They haven't been able to do anything since they have not been able to replace their starting quarterback uh, who's had success with Edmonton, hasn't had the great cup success, but it's got you have a t- another team there. So you knew he was the guy they needed to anchor down. And I don't care. You, you got to anchor him down in this league. Uh, you keep that mm-hmm. guy here for seven, eight years, and you have seven, eight years of su- success and base that on another couple, two, three cups. That's invaluable. And, and again, they missed the boat. Yeah, and hopefully this isn't, well, I mean, it's starting to look like it may be, but hopefully it's not one of those things you look back at 10 years and say, you know what, where'd they go wrong? They started off so, well, they say they traded these guys and they didn't bring them back and they lost that nucleus. And now they're 10, 15 years down the road and have never sniffed back at another cup or whatever. And hopefully that's not the case. Now, you've obviously, you know, played against a lot of linemen. So we're not going to go too far into a lot of it, but who would you say would be the best offensive lineman you've ever faced? in your career well i i don't know best you know what um roger aldag and uh Tara again you guys might have to help me out with some names man is uh <laughs> they had the two guards there they had aldag and the old poli remember big bob poli yes. with the big man true mustache and i don't know who their center was but these guys were dirty and i remember <laughs> with my first couple of years in the league and all that used to wait right behind the center so if you beat the center he would just be waiting to spring and he'd stick that helmet right underneath your chin he knocked me out on my feet i don't know how many times really? literally i didn't go down but you would yeah you're, you're not remember a few plays and you get back to it um those guys uh, were tremendous, tremendous, uh, t- tough to play. And they had Ken Austin. He was a three-step dropper guy, too. So they knew damn well they could take that shot at you and, and really lunge at you. Um, so we had headaches uh, for a days after those games. Uh, but then in Winnipeg, uh, when I played defensive end at the beginning of my career, Chris Walby, mm. Miles Gorel, one on each side. The Twin Towers were there. Um, pretty tough physically to go in against those guys uh play and play out i used to flip and rotate on 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 both sides and play against both of them uh during the each game and uh it was tiring it was very tiring but no uh you know you, you had to you had to learn to to move uh that 370 pounds uh plus in some of those cases i know milo had to have been 370 at least he said 325 he was a biscuit shy of 350 i think <laughs> uh that being said all six foot seven of them uh moved well they were good athletes as well good good feet and uh in our league they allowed him to hold so damn much they just get those big mitts on the outside of your pads and i would just punch him up in their beard grab handfuls of beard and try and just make him cry because it made me feel good <laughs> <laughs> you were signed actually as an offensive lineman with edmonton right yeah, yeah, that's that's how it kind of I was an area protection uh, back when you could protect uh, one player for the area uh, before, and keep him out of the draft. So I was that guy, and I don't know how it ended up. I think just back in the day, you were a big, strong Canadian. Yeah. They put you at offensive line, and I started my first year as a, when I played junior football for the first year uh, at at uh, nose tackle and defensive line. So 
Um, I, that was more of a technical glitch, I think, as far as that first contract that I did sign. Okay. It did say offensive line. They, I said to them right when I got there because I saw that in the paper. I said, if I continue to do well at defensive line, will you guys allow me to stay there? And they said, yeah, of course. And I think in the back of their mind, they probably thought, nah, he'll he'll struggle, and then we'll move him to O line as quickly as their other Canadians. But uh, plain and simple, you make an All Star team, you're as good as everybody else out there, whether you're Canadian or American. Uh, and then you get paid accordingly and you get the respect accordingly after that, because then they realize uh, I was the first one to get, think, to get that in the Eastern Conference, the first Canadian to get a defensive line nod uh, in last in nine or 10 years, because it was obviously American position, predominantly American position. Most Canadian uh, teams had one Canadian as a, as a token roster guy that they would play and rotate through uh, on special teams or whatnot. But uh, when you can start and play, you became that much more of a, a a, a huge advantage uh, a big commodity for sure roster spot yeah there was a roster now a, an american roster spot that they could use somewhere else at a receiver position punt returner whatever the case may be uh and, and it gave them some more versatility for sure now obviously yeah looking back you really did pave the way for a lot of the current canadian d linemen to say you know we have an opportunity here uh and we can fill it with a canadian would you have been open to moving to offensive line if, if that actually came to it you know what? Uh, if I wouldn't have kept succeeding and if I wouldn't have kept having success, then I, I would have said for sure, you know, because I just wanted to play. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, when well, you can tell when you're doing one on ones, even if you haven't played in the game yet and, and you're at a training camp and uh, and you're beating their veterans and you're beating some of these guys that are their first yeah. round drafts and, and guys you shouldn't be beating, uh, you know, you're doing OK. Um, if they would have asked me, I would have fought it as much as I could because it's a big difference in the mentality of catching and receiving as opposed to attacking and going after somebody as far as the mental outlook and the outlook of the personality, I think, of the athlete. And I don't think I would have been as successful at offensive line because I would have been that guy who didn't have the patience. I would try to be killing them all the time and lunging at guys, and then those were the easiest guys to give the quick swim to, and then you're in the backfield right away. Unless you played in Saskatchewan and you had a three-step dropper and you could have been the guard cleaning up the center's mistakes, then you'd have been perfect. Exactly. But you had to be five foot ten, five foot nine, <laughs> too, because then you just kind of loaded up like a spring and just coiled into your chin. Uh, last thing with the Ottawa one is I just want to hear the infamous story of you going through a plate glass wall or door. I remember hearing it as a kid, like being young and, and hearing the news. And I was like, what is happening in that locker room? Like, it just felt like a gong show. But hearing this story that you guys had a, a fight in the locker room and going through a plate glass window or something. Yeah, that uh, was during the Dexter Manley era. Um, <laughs> it was... Uh, there was a lot of turmoil. Um, there was a lot of players who didn't know each other. Uh, we had a lot of new guys. We had a lot of guys that would come from the NFL and they had NFLitis in a large way. And that was, well, I've already played in the NFL. I just have to show up here in Canada and I'll get back to the NFL. Well, no, if you can't come here and start and play and dominate, well, why would they bring you back to a league that's superior to ours in, in, in your, your eyes anyways? Uh, so that, that's what I considered NFL-itis. They thought they were going to get back there just because they were they were who they were. Um, so there was a young guy named Andrew Stewart who had some NFL experience. He played with the San Francisco 49ers. Um, he had done 
uh, I don't know, he had two or three years kicked around in the NFL, came here, big time NFL itis guy. Um, I mean, you have to understand too, you came from a big four year school and you came and saw our, our training room and our facility <laughs> at the Ottawa Rough Riders. You would have laughed, you know, at Oklahoma State or Nebraska or any of these big programs, Ohio or you know, Michigan, these, these, these guys couldn't, they thought it was a joke, you know, like they thought it was, uh, they were, they were getting pumped by uh, Aston Kusher was going to pop out and say, Hey, we're just, we're just kidding. This isn't really our dressing room uh, because of the, uh, just how small everything was. And, and we had to buy our own shoes at the time. We didn't have a shoe deal. Really? We had to go to the, we had to go to the store and buy our own gloves. We had to buy our own shoes. Wow. Um, oh man. You know, ridiculous, ridiculous for a professional uh, sports organization. Uh, so help me with my train of thought again. The uh, fight with um, uh, oh, with Andrew, Andrew Stewart. Yeah. So I'm a, well, I'm a team captain. Uh, I'm one of the team captains. So I'm at the front of the very very crowded, hot, sweaty uh, room that's got some of the players even spilled into the hallways. It was so crowded. Um, and he's in the front row. And to summarize this very quickly, guys, is, is, is as I'm taking this, he's just chirping and he's just saying like the ridiculous things like, you know, it's a Tom Paid Award, which is named after a gentleman who is uh, just a, the most gentlemanly player that you could think of. Uh, and it's for the most communally community based uh, uh, athlete you have on your team that's uh, is most organized or, or does most in the in the community and uh, does most as far as off the field is okay. basically what it is. And it's a very prestigious award among Canadians in particular. He's in the front row after everything I put down. Finally, I just had enough. I remember I had a coffee in my hand, and I said, yes, uh, Andrew, you just won a free trip back to the NFL. And I pointed towards the door, like, <laughs> just get out of here now. And I just remember he, I, I could feel him getting out of his chair. So as I went to put down my coffee – I thought originally <laughs> on my mind, I connected and I almost knocked him out. I've talked to a few guys since then, and I think I whiffed and missed, but <laughs> I threw this haymaker from the Albuquerque and <laughs> his head off because this dude was bigger than me. He was 6'6", probably 3'10", three, three and he was shredded, man. So I knew I tried to eliminate things quickly rather sooner than later. Long story short, he never threw a punch. I ended up getting his uh, hoodie over his head a little bit, but then he picked me up. And he couldn't really see what he was doing. And there, he started clearing the room using me as a battering ram, literally running with me in this room. And then we fall into this uh, sliding petition. It's a glass petition that separates the meeting okay. rooms. And it's so you can have one big room or you can slide it and make it into two offices. Long story short, I just froze because I knew what we were up against. He's still flailing away, flailing away. The thing went over. My hand went through. It took stitches. And, and uh, you know, everybody broke it up at that point. Uh, I think I missed a game because of the stitches. And, uh, it, you know, it was just one of those things that you just had to say uh, it had to be done. Um, the guy was borrowing money from defensive blacks and other smaller guys on our team and not paying them back. Um, this has been something that a couple of us players had talked about previous to this is the first opportunity somebody had to, to let this guy know that he wasn't welcome anymore. Uh, it was, we were going to do it. So I did it. And, uh, <laughs> it just, you know, what, why I thought I'd get through to him or something. I thought maybe he'd have a, a revelation and go, oh, geez, I was a bad guy. He was the same asshole after. So it didn't matter uh, in <laughs> hindsight, but it did make me feel good that somebody did something at that time uh, and didn't just sit there. 
Nice. That's uh, yeah. I remember hearing <laughs> yeah. pieces of that story and whatever, but getting it from the the horse's mouth is uh, definitely satisfying. And I'm sure that you were satisfied to a point once that was done, even though he didn't change. But no, no, he didn't didn't play much for us. But anyways, uh, they you know they're again volatile locker room. Um, you didn't get to know guys' names until they were here for six months or so because there was such a revolving door. They'd come in yeah. for tryouts. 20-day, 30-day tryouts. I mean, they're right next to you in your locker, and they put in the extra lockers and the petitions in the middle of the locker room, and you're supposed to have a team environment still. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I have a question for you before uh, yep. we potentially move on to the next segment. Is uh, Now, the, I, I'm a fan of the CFL. The current CFL, the past CFL, I like the game. It's wide open. It's a bigger field. I will say this, though. They've come a long way in terms of the stadiums. What was the best and worst surface you played on? Uh, I, mean, there, I mean, some of those surfaces were like concrete, especially playing out, out west uh, in the cold. Uh, but was there one in particular that was really hard? Um, Saskatchewan was really bad before they got their new turf. Hamilton used to have more patches, I think, than they actually did original turf. Like you <laughs> look at their field and you could see all the patches. And I, I swear you couldn't find 10 yards by 10 yards, it wasn't, didn't have a hole in it somewhere. Um, so, you know, eventually they were forced to get new, new, new uh, turf. But it was dangerous. I mean, you know, it, it was like playing on a concrete, like playing in a parking lot, like you said, that had uh, turf over it. Um, receivers used to get third degree burns, uh, even when they wore elbow sleeves from laying out and all that stuff. And then, you know, there'd be seagull shit all over it all week long. And they used to get staph infections all the time. I mean, it was. Um, it was a CFL. Um, it was the glory of the CFL. They couldn't afford the big stadiums. The, the the provinces weren't throwing in money. The federal government sure the heck wasn't throwing in any money. Um, I don't think the business plan lended for anybody to, to believe in what was going on in the CFL at that time. Uh, it is definitely, as you said, with the new stadiums, it's turned up a notch. And, and now you've got guys making uh, defensive linemen now making 100, 120 grand a year. Uh, you know, in a professional sports franchise, uh, and, and an organization, yeah, you should be making more than the guy that's uh, on TSN, uh, you know, uh, doing five-pin bowling, you know, for the weekend. And he's done a $50,000 tournament, and that's what you make for the year. So the, hopefully those uh, pills are not as hard to swallow now with they're making a little bit more money, a little bit more success. Do you, do you like the Lansdowne development? Do you think that's – I mean, uh, the stadium itself, I, I really like. The, there's no The sight lines are great. You can stand wherever you want or sit wherever you want and have a pretty good view of the game. Uh, but the overall development of Lansdowne, what do you think? I think it's fantastic because they were able to keep it where they did. Uh, and, and I think that was huge. I think the spot right by the canal is fantastic. Uh, and I, like you, uh, I think the stadium was well planned out. Um, you don't have to sit there in your seat all game long. I can't do that anymore with my head stuff uh, and the visualization of all that stuff. Um, so what it does, it lends for you having being able to watch a game from five or six different perspectives. Uh, it's a fantastic situation. It's a great stadium, and it just shows you where the CFL is going as far as the league's concerned. They, they finally have professional people doing making professional decisions uh, on things that should uh, should be made. Awesome. All right, I think we've gone through the CFL, so let's take a real quick break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about your transition to other very contact, high contact <laughs> sports. For some reason, yep. you have a craving about those. Anyway, we have the transition to it, and we'll uh, we'll talk about those when we come back right back. 
Okay, so we have talked about the CFL aspect, and now we're going to move into some of the other career paths that you had kind of chosen. And this one is very near and dear to Pierre's heart because he likes the the wrestling. Um, I've never been somebody to watch a lot of wrestling, but I do, and I cannot find it for the life of me on YouTube, but I do remember the fundraiser, whatever WWF match it was in Saskatchewan that had yourself, uh, Bobby Jurison, Scott Hendricks, and Mike Anderson around the ring providing security or whatever it happens to be. Um, And then you got into the ring and got into the actual match. And I remember watching it. And to be honest, not so much watching you in the ring. I was so focused on Bobby Jurison not being able to keep a straight face that I was dying <laughs> laughing when I was watching it. And I wish I could find the the clip on that. But yeah. uh, tell me a little bit about that aspect. And obviously that transitioned into your wrestling career after as well. And I'll let Pierre do a lot of the questions because he <laughs> understands wrestling. Well, I don't. You do. You, you're, uh, you know what, Brock? Anyway. Watch it. I mean, Brock, I, I'm I'm with you there, buddy. I did not <laughs> follow wrestling. I remember Stampede Wrestling from the day, and I remember watching it the odd Saturdays. But I was not from I was not a wrestling mark, as they're called, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it wasn't anything that I watched on a regular basis. Uh, what transpired in Regina that day was the WWF at the time. Yes, they got beat up by the World Wildlife Federation, kicked their passing <laughs> court, and took their name. That was one of the funnier moments of my life. But anyways, that being said, um, did a guest spot. They had come to Regina, and for whatever reason, you'd think Regina would have been the folklore of wrestling, with the <laughs> preying on the mentally challenged and, and the other people in this world that just set us, you know, that, that complete our society and are very part of our yeah. society, yeah. a great important part of our society, but seem to flock around the wrestling world. Um, God bless them, because that's what makes the world go round in the world of wrestling. So they brought us a couple of us Rough Riders at the time, myself, Bobby Jurison, as you mentioned, uh, Scott Hendrickson, and uh, Stevenson, was it? uh, Mike Anderson. Mike Anderson, thank you. And um, so it was Bret Hart versus Psycho Sid. So Psycho Sid (laughs) had his little posse in the corner at that time. It was King Kong Bundy. Who was the little guy? Um, He was... uh, Oh, what was his name? Anyway, some of these Ted guys. Yossi? No, was, not that guy. There was about four. There was about three or four of them Is in their him? corner to match up the three or four that were in our corner. It was Bret Hart and Psycho Sid in the ring fighting. I was to distract Psycho Sid, jump up on the apron, and Psycho Sid's coming over and he starts to choke me. I grab him by the throat and I push him back. Bret Hart at that time has gone under the ring, which I think is illegal. I'm not sure. Illegal. I think he went under the ring and then popped up the other side, unbeknownst to everybody, and then came in the ring after I pushed uh, Psycho Sid and rolled him up on a schoolboy uh, and uh, and 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 pinned him. And uh, that's that was the uh, christening. That was the christening moment of uh, my wrestling career. Um, it did change my life for probably five, six years of my life, uh, following that dream uh, and that uh, answering that phone call that Bret Hart ended up giving me uh, at the end of the season and saying, do you want to come? Do you want to come and, uh, and train and uh, I'll teach you how to be a wrestler? So that was what, that's what uh, triggered that whole Amazing. set of dominoes. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you telling us that you, you trained in the infamous 
dungeon, the heart, the heart dungeon. Yeah, I've been there a couple times. Um, but in honestly, uh, we trained mostly at Bret Hart's house. He had a full size WWF ring that overlapped his pool uh, a little bit on the one side. Uh, and it was in his pool room. And uh, we wrestled there. We were trained by an old gentleman who's deceased now. His name was Leo Burke. And if you look up that name yeah. in the wrestling world, uh, Leo, Leo, Leo the Lion. Leo the Lion was our trainer. And um, that's when he brought myself and Christian, uh, the Hardy Boys, uh, Edge, who Edge's character was made for me. And, and I blew, broke my leg. I could tell you about that, that vignette. That whole vignette that he did to launch his career was actually made for me. And then I uh, blew my leg out in Regina. Um, but uh, Ken Shamrock was making a transition from the UFC to uh, MM, uh, to WWF. Um, he'd have some other older veterans that would come in that were hurt and trying to get back in. And, and they would help us out as far as giving us the ropes. But um, that, yeah, they sent me into literally another training camp uh, for the wrestling world at Bret Hart's house. Mm-hmm. Trained by Leo Burke. Uh, Test was another guy that was there. Andrew Martin uh, from Toronto. There was that connection with Edge and Christian. Uh, like I said, those two guys were legit uh, boyhood buddies from grade five. They were together, those guys. And when they were six, in grade six, they both said to each other, we're going to be professional wrestlers. And uh, they both had flourishing, amazing careers. That's, that is so wild. That, yeah. was a, that was the Attitude Era where... The WWF at the time was starting to lose all their all their talent from the 80s. So Macho Man, they had deemed just, I guess, his time has passed. He, he ended up going to WCW. Hulk Hogan was the, one of the first to leave. And then all the boys started leaving. Uh, Razor Ramon took off. Diesel took off. And so began this attitude era. And all the guys that you just mentioned were part of that new wave of whatever direction Vinnie Mac was taking the WWF at the time, which was, which was really edgy. Yeah. Uh, which was really like, they pushed the envelope. You didn't hear guys like stone cold saying a swearing on the microphone. And like, they went from wholesome family to sex and, and swear words, you know, well, overnight. That was the whole gang time too. Remember they had the blacks yeah. against the Latinos against the, like who else in the world could get away with segregating the minorities and then pitting them against each other in fights. Ron Vince Simmons. Vince Ron McMahon. Simmons, yeah. Ron Simmons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. ex-football guy from the NFL. The Nation of Domination. I remember that. That, that was, again, pushing the envelope uh, yep. at a time, like you said, it was, there was you know, a volatile society to talk about those types of things. So the rock, it was the really rock, interesting. Uh, the Rock was the head of the nation there for a while. And after I did that one guest spot, I did a, a guest spot here. I did a wrestling match here against um, Edge at the time. His name was Sexton Hardcastle. Uh, when he traveled around, we did a, a couple of uh, Maritimes. Uh, we were based out of Moncton. We did, uh, we did 200, and I did 250 shows that year out of 365 days. Uh, we did 53 shows in 50 days or something. We'd do two shows on Sundays, and we literally would just travel. We'd get in the car, we'd do a show, and it was called the Grand Prix Wrestling, it was called. Emile Dupree was the promoter, and he used to brag. He said, well, uh, Macho Man, Randy Savage, and Bret Hart has taken bumps on this ring, and that's how old this damn ring was by the time I got there. Um, it hadn't been changed, but we we would uh, go and, and travel and, and wrestle around uh, as a group there. Uh, and we did that for about six months. And then uh, then they gave me this uh, kind of a call up 
to do some dark matches, uh, matches uh, before the cameras got rolling. And uh, then unfortunately, just as they had this vignette, because they, they didn't have a character for me. And the guys that really were successful with this in that business, they would bring their own character. They would actually come self-contained with a, a storyline and everything that would help the writers to, to work them into whatever they wanted to work them into. And I didn't have experience, like I said. So anyways, they had to develop this character. The developed edge was for, developed for me. I remember looking at the vignette of what they wanted me to do and running down the alley and hitting these cars. And they ended up, they just, uh, the weekend before that, uh, I, for a promoter that was very good to me out in Manitoba, uh, I did a match against Cyrus the Virus. Um, it was a, a, a just a one time off, and I ended up. That's uh, it was, and that was the week before I was to go do this this uh, promotion and be called Edge and all that stuff, and then get the push. Uh, and then I broke my leg uh, for whatever reason. There mm-hmm. goes the grace, uh, goes I is uh, snapped the crown of my TB off posterior cruciate, anterior cruciate. And this is like four minutes into a 22-minute ring uh, a match and uh, it, complete dislocation of my legs, and I couldn't do anything uh, after that. And I just remember people, you suck, call guy, you know, and I was like, no, man, I'm like really hurt here. I broke uh, my leg, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my kneecap was on the side over here. And uh, yeah, the rest and the rest was history after that. Uh, that was the end of the beginning for my career, as short as it was, um, because then the painkillers and all that stuff took over because I played 11 years of playing nose tackle before yeah. this. Other guys were fresh, fresh meat getting thrown to the wolves, so they're not bumps and bruises. And I don't care what anybody says about wrestling, about being fake or this or that. Uh, because I tell you I'm going to hit you in the head with the metal chair, it doesn't mean it hurts any less when they do it. <laughs> it just means you know it's coming, so you bow your neck and you hope he hits you on the top of the head. And when you see guys get cut, it's because it's the edge of the chair and they don't do it properly. Um, it's a lot easier to hurt somebody when you punch somebody than it is not to hurt somebody when you're trying to punch somebody. There's a lot to it. Uh, and, and the last thing you had to do as a big guy is you didn't want to be labeled as the guy that couldn't work with their stars because you'd hurt them. Right. Um, AKA, uh, who is the big muscle head there? Uh, the Steiners, the Steiner, one of the Steiner brothers there. He, he could, he would, they would do, they wouldn't let him near any of the top 25%. He never got any main events or anything like that because he, he would crush guys out there. He wasn't a, wasn't a skilled athlete. He was just a big juice monkey. Big Papa Pump. Big Papa Pump. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, there was, uh, Vinnie Mac was notorious for loving the big guys. Like he loved, the more muscle, the better. The bigger you are, the, the, the you got a job with the WWE or F at the time. And, you know, there was, he loved guys like the one man gang and Bundy and Big John Studd. And he just, the bigger you are, the better. Uh, yeah. And I thought, you know, like he started to transition a little bit away from that as the wrestling started to transition into this sort of attitude era. Um, you know, there was a lot of football guys that made the successful transition to, to wrestling. Their careers are, are not as active, if I can use a, a, a proper word. You know, you see Brock Lesnar making three, four appearances a year instead of every week like some of these guys are doing. Has wrestling changed in terms of, like, the impact that they're taking in the ring versus, you know, Ric Flair's days when there was a lot of, like, grappling and a lot of, like, uh, you know, the uh, work on the ground, quote-unquote? Well, <clears throat> to answer that, I think you have to look back as, as to when they became conscientious and they went from being uh, a sport, which they were at the beginning and everybody was kind of lumping them together with football and this and that. And then when Vince made the, what I think is probably the most strategical genius movies ever made, he took it into sports entertainment 
because then none of his athletes could be drug tested. Then none of his athletes could be scrutinized like a rock star or a movie star or somebody like that because it was just all entertainment. And everybody wondered, why did Vince go this route? He was the smartest thing he ever did because it kept all those committees and the, the waters off his back and they were moving in. People don't realize this. Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan were indicted by the grand jury on steroid charges for trafficking steroids way earlier in their career. Uh, they both pleaded guilty to it, actually, just to get it to go away and paid a lot of money to have it go away. So they were at a preposition of, of, of a, a fine point of being villains to, for, for real life and being looked at as entertainers. And Vince saw that opportunity. And it took all the pressure. He then implemented his own wellness policy, which from what I've seen is just really a, a way for him to weed out the guys he doesn't want. He just tests the guys that he wants all the time and doesn't test the guys that he doesn't want to test. The same as we do in football. They don't test their starting quarterbacks as much as they do the third string, mm -hmm. you know, defensive back who gets tested every time. Uh, you know, that goes on in that industry as well when there's millions of dollars on the line. And uh, that was, uh, yeah, I want to make sure that was uh, something that was mentioned because that's where also the size of the guys went from these huge genetic mutants uh, because we could take whatever we wanted and nobody worried about what you were taking. Uh, the fact that you were, everybody was dying and still is when they're 50 or so, uh, they didn't care about and still don't care about. Um, but that's what I think happened. And then they went to the smaller athlete uh, because they didn't want the steroid abuse and that type of uh, handle to go with the WW, uh, WWE at the time, or WWE now. No, different, it's, different world, different world now. Oh, yeah. And I've seen, you know, you've seen lists. I've seen YouTube clips of, uh, of wrestlers who've passed away, like the British Bulldog and, uh, you know, guys that were just massive, like freakishly massive. Yeah. Uh, die, dying way too young. Brian Pillman, uh, Kerry Von Erich, uh, the, the list goes on. Chris Benoit. Uh, Chris Benoit. I slept Chris at his Benoit. Sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Crippler. I mean, he was – I mean, that was would – you, would you attribute some of his behaviors to, to, to drug use? If he, I mean, I, I've never followed up on his backstory, whether he was tested for drugs or whether he, they found that in his system. But, would it, you know, considering the, what he did – would you attribute that to, you know, certainly, certainly there's a, a, a level of, uh, you know, there's a mental health issue there, obviously. Yep. But could that be drug related? Well, definitely. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a guy who, if you look at his stature again, he was probably only five foot 10 on a good day, probably closer to five, nine, but he looked like a little midget because he was just so buff all the time. So that's somebody who was abusing anabolic steroids all the time. Uh, there is no, off season in the wrestling world. So you don't have an opportunity to, to downsize and, and to recycle stuff and not to get off uh, uh, what you're taking and get back to your own system to kick back in and do it as, as educatingly as you possibly can when you're taking these drugs. Um, they don't even have that chance or opportunity. Chris Benoit, uh, you remember what he did. I mean, man, he, he massacred his whole family. And, um, you know, you can't tell me that's not because of all of the above. Not, and, I, and, and honestly, because I knew the guy, he was actually one of the better guys. He had definitely abused steroids and growth hormone too was his big thing. Um, and was a lot of guys big thing cause they could afford it. And, and, um, but he didn't drink like a lot of the other guys. He didn't do, didn't do, didn't do uh, recreational drugs. Like a lot of the other guys did. Like I was there like a kidney candy shop. I did everything. I was an alcoholic drug addict using steroids and, and doing everything at that moment in time, because I could go in the bar downtown Toronto and sit down with road dog 
and Billy Gunn and smoke a joint in the bar and the bouncers wouldn't do anything. You know, <laughs> it, it, it was like, uh, it was like as close as I could ever be to being a rock star. And I was a guy at the preface of making it. I didn't even make it really as far as when I look back at where I could have gone and what could have been a career. Uh, yeah, I was just at that cusp of making it, but, uh, I was with a lot of guys that did very well. And, uh, the Hawks and the animals and all those guys that I ended up, uh, you know, partying with and, and, and going on the road with to a certain degree. Well, did you ever party with Ric Flair? Did you ever have a chance to actually have drinks with him? He's legendary apparently with his partying and all that. Yeah. Hulk and all those guys, like you mentioned, um, uh, they had all gone to WCW. Rick was in that same uh, book. Um, I think when I was there, you were still had Steve Stone Cold, Steve, the rock, uh, remember China, um, they had, uh, well, the, um, the big show is still there. That's a legit seven foot two, you know, 530 pound man who makes a can of beer look like a big lighter in his hand. Uh, cause he's so huge. Um, it, uh, they, that's when that, all that was going on. Hunter Helmsley was still very popular at the time, obviously. And, uh, that whole degeneration X whole thing was going on. As you mentioned, that volatile era where they just had factions attacking each other. And, uh, as I said, only in professional wrestling could you get away with it. I remember being in Ottawa at the Corel Center the night after the Montreal screw job, uh, and nobody really knew what was going on, right? There was the pay-per-view. He spit on Vince McMahon. The fans were just completely in the dark. Like, we had no idea. Monday Night Raw was the next night in Ottawa. Yeah. And I remember going there. We didn't know what to expect, and it was the birth of DX. It was That was the, the music, the whole thing. That was the first night that they actually launched that. And the, everyone was like, what? What's ha- like? What's going on? It's it's no longer the wrestling we knew, but like you said, it was genius. Well, it was, uh, and to, to preface that that uh, particular story is myself, Edge, Christian. Um, I think Kurt Angle was with us. Anyways, we were all in Montreal when that happened. We were behind the scenes watching this transpire, and we knew that there was something wrong because Brett came back after the match. And we also knew when he dropped the strap in Canada to Shawn Michaels that he didn't want to do that. Um, the whole thing and the reason why that happened, guys, is because about two weeks or a month earlier, Shawn Michaels would not drop the strap to Bret Hart in Texas, where he's from. And Bret understood that. He said, that's fine. He dropped it wherever they went, to, you know, the next wrestling week and they went to a different state and he, and he dropped the strap to him. So Bret just said the same thing in when they went to Montreal for that big thing. He said, listen, I'm not going to come to you guys come to Canada 10 times a year. I'm, I'll drop the strap anywhere else, but I won't drop it here. So that's when they devised the whole screw job and to, to exclude Bret out of the ending, which is the one thing you always knew in wrestling. You always knew the beginning and you always knew the end. A lot of times you would feed off the crowd and you would make up stuff as it goes along. But uh, when the ref told you to take it home, meaning let's wrap it up, they, they're, they're waiting for you. You knew the boom, it's go boom, boom, boom. The sequence events, you've already worked on it and the, and the match was over. You had to get back up behind that curtain because they had to cut to a commercial and make some real money. Different world. Wow. All right. Um, Different different world in an effort of time but also the fact that you touched upon it at the beginning of this segment of the audience uh, of the wwe or wwf and their characteristics they don't fall into line with our audience so we're going to move forward sorry pep um, <laughs> and the only thing i took from that is is the guy's real name sexton hardcastle or is that his stage name <laughs> that was his uh, wrestling name at the time okay uh, that's now edge 
who has, apparently is back now, actually. He's, he just resurfaced again, uh, like literally this last weekend or something. Um, but uh, yeah, that that uh, that was him. And Christian was Christian. He was always been Christian. Uh, but those two, like I said, they came up together as school boy, but school boy buddies from Orangeville, just outside of Toronto. I stayed at their house many times uh, in between road trips that we were going from Winnipeg to Moosey Moose Factory up in the James Bay. <laughs> oh my lord! Ackham Albright, bodybuilder, tried to make it in wrestling. Came up there. We went to this one road trip, and he was taking a bunch of steroids and stuff, and he couldn't bring all this stuff with him. And he ended up they had to send him home in an ambulance because he, <laughs> you know we were up on an island with these uh, on a, you know with the Eskimos living up right. there for, for the week, and uh, yeah, he didn't quite make it. So uh, interesting, uh, interesting story. <laughs> One last thing, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, and I know I'm sure Brock's going to be interested. Is, did Culkamania start with wrestling, or was that your post wrestling name when you came into when you started doing radio? What it was pre wrestling. It was pre wrestling. Pre wrestling. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It fed completely on the Hulkamania thing, and I can remember I used to make shirts here in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and the incredible Culkamania or something with the Ottawa <laughs> Rough Rider. And I used to make two, $3,000 a game just selling these t-shirts by $10 a t-shirt in the stands. I'd send these kids around, give them a hundred bucks and they would sell these shirts for 10 bucks each. I got them from Brooks printed up ready for three fifty or four bucks. So I was making about five, six bucks a shirt. <laughs> you think you're doing the good thing for the league and promoting everything. The next year the league said, Nope, can't do it. You have to buy a licensing charge. You know, you have to pay us uh, three grand or whatever for the light. You know, I thought really guys, I'm not making a, I'm not doing it for that. I wasn't doing it for that reason. Anyways, uh, again, Ottawa gets in the way of <laughs> successful, like successful once again. But uh, no, that was pre-wrestling, just so you know. But yeah, okay. I was just obviously feeding off of Hulkamania at the time. Okay, so you have <laughs> a pro football career where you're getting smoked in the head by guys like uh, Aldridge and stuff who are under the chin, giving you those things, uh, knocking you out on your feet. You go to wrestling, you're getting hit in the head with chairs and body slammed and punched and everything. And then you decide, you know what? I think I might try MMA and hockey. You went and played professional hockey for a while too, although it was limited because of the, I think the agreement you had with the, was it the, was it the Ottawa team? I was still playing football. Yeah. I was 93 and I was still playing here with the Rough Riders. And, um, you know, I, I'd only started playing football when I was uh, 19 years old. 18, 18 years old, I started my first year of junior football, and then it all went from there to junior college. And then after three years, I had a contract with the Eskimos. Um, but that being said, my lifelong ambition was to be a professional hockey player. And I played in the Western Hockey League with the Medicine Hat Tigers, uh, Spokane Flyers. I was the assistant captain of the Medicine Hat Tigers. Uh, and then I ended up breaking my hand uh, five times in one season and I couldn't even shoot a puck anymore. So that's what actually had me playing football is I could actually uh, wear a cast and uh, still play football. And uh, that's what made the transition as far as uh, from hockey to football. You were projected to be drafted in the later rounds of the NHL, if I'm not mistaken, in the fifth or sixth round. Yeah, I was uh, Ken Danico and I uh, played minor hockey together. He lived about two blocks away from us. And Kenny uh, ended up with about a 21-year, 22-year career with the New Jersey Devils. Um, so he played, uh, we played together in Spokane together. Uh, we played junior together. And um, yeah, I, uh, that year, it was the year I broke my hand. And I didn't think I was going to get drafted. 
And I had an agent call me and said, congratulations, Glenn, uh, you're going to be drafted. I'd like to represent you. And I thought, oh, that's kind of odd. Why would he say that unless it was going to come true? And then the Edmonton Journal at the time uh, came out with an article and said that I was supposed to go in the fifth round, I think. And Ken Danico was supposed to go in the second round. And Kenny ended up going, I think, last pick of the first round. And I waited for that uh, infamous 2,283rd pick or whatever it is by the time they get through everybody. And uh, honestly, to that point in my life, that was the most disappointing day of my life. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, crying like a baby because I just wanted an opportunity to go play. And uh, I obviously, I think it also helped me to be as successful to play football as quickly as I did. Uh, I wasn't going to be denied twice uh, in two different sports. Uh, you know, there was I was still uh, feeling the sting of that not getting drafted uh, when I thought I was uh, supposed to. Uh, and then having the broken hand, uh, I had no other choices as, as far as the career is concerned. Just, again, uh, not to get into the steroid use, I know you're very open about it. Uh, just curious on the timing of when that started. Was that around that, if you've, once you decided to go football, is that kind of when that happened? Because you're, I mean, you were ginormous. So playing hockey at that size was probably not something that was beneficial. So was yeah. it just football related? Yeah, it was completely. And, and okay. I can remember even uh, being 225 pounds, I think, uh, uh, in hockey. And natural. I had never touched a steroid in my life. And they were going, man, you're getting to be almost too big. That's back when mm. Mark Messier was a really good sized player and he was about 220. And I was 17 years old and I was already about five pounds more than he was. Uh, but I could still skate. And anyways, if they would have just let me play hockey, things could have been different. Um, I, when I was in Medicine Hat, there was a, a coach there by the name of Patty Janelle. And uh, Patty Janelle was one of those old school coaches. He wore a black cowboy hat on the road, a white cowboy hat at home. He didn't talk to the man. He didn't talk to you. The only time he ever talked to you is when you were being traded or let go. Um, it was a very, he would tap me on the shoulder and he'd say, Glenn, I don't like what number 23 did do. And I'd say, guess not coach. And I have to jump over the boards and you have to go fight somebody. Um, you would do that sometimes back in those days, you were allowed three fights before you got thrown out of the game. I can remember having to soak my hands in ice water, just to eat cereal in the morning because hitting a helmet and those, some of those heads were pretty hard, uh-huh. uh, after you know, three or four fights. And then you used to play, we played an 82 game schedule back uh, in junior then. And, and, uh, you played, uh, you know, four or five times a week. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And, your, and yeah. your MMA, how long did the MMA last? I know that, uh, well, you had one here in Hull. I remember my brother had gone to it. I couldn't join him, but uh, you knocked the guy out in like a minute. Apparently, he, the guy looked like a big bag of milk, but uh, he did not last very long. I don't think he even wanted to be in the same octagon as you, but... Um, he just got a Kingston pen. He just did uh, five years in <laughs> Kingston pen. So he was a, a biker, an ex-biker. So he thought he was a badass. So anyways, uh, yeah, it was 73 seconds. So it was a good first first match to have. That's awesome. But I, I just, but guys, I had um, done kickboxing my whole life. Uh, one of the best things my father ever did for me um, is in grade nine, he dropped me off at a dojo in Edmonton, uh, Stapine's gym. I remember it very distinctly. Um, Sugarfoot Cunningham was a champion back then. And uh, I just remember jumping a lot of rope. I remember doing a lot of kicks. I remember doing a lot of striking. And, and I used that 
in my football career as cardio and as training uh, for my, my my football career. Eye hand coordination, uh, flexibility, all the above. Um, it was ideal, and I still recommend it to any athlete in any sport, mm. uh, as far as background sports concerned. Because I do believe you should do more than one. Is uh, to to use a martial arts of any kind uh, in the background. So I just I just basically uh, picked up from where I'd been training my whole life. Um, I had never done MMA before. But um, that's when it started to get to be really popular. And I, it's like anything else I look at, I just didn't want to say I want to go watch that. I said, I want to go do that. And uh, next thing I know, I was in a Speedo with a mouth guard and these <laughs> four-ounce <laughs> four gloves on my hand and, and a cage wrapped around you. And you're looking around going, okay, I guess this is it, boys. Uh, your cardio, and I talk about training and, and uh, your ability to see your training flash before your eyes. It, it starts pretty quick there. Um, if you have confidence in, in your abilities, though. And to, to preface that, guys, um, if I wouldn't have been a heavyweight, there's no way at 44 years old that I could have stepped in to, and done three pro fights in mixed martial arts um, because, uh, you know, they were just not the best athletes in the world. Uh, they were just big guys at that time. We're mm -hmm. getting better and better. And as you see the sport get more popular, uh, these guys, they're taking from football and they're taking from these other sports now because the money's there now, too. Uh, but back then, um, if I would have been a welterweight or a middleweight, for instance, you know, at 44, I'd have got my ass handed to me probably pretty quick uh, with smaller athletes. It would be quicker mm. uh, and the age would have been a bit more uh, noticeable. But, uh, yeah, you saw, like they said, that uh, there was a can of milk that I fought my first fight. My second fight, I went to Calgary. It was a taller can of milk is all it was. Uh, <laughs> I ended up fighting a real fighter in my third fight, and I got knocked out real quick. So, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> Glenn, I got to ask you, were you were you in the WWF or, or in and around that time when they did the Brawl for All? The Brawl for All? The actual uh, pay-per-view? Was that a pay-per-view? No, it was. It, uh, it might have been a pay per view, it, or it was an event where that was, it was. That was to bring Kenny into the into the in industry. I think. I think that's when they started to trying to introduce that because they wanted to bring Ken Shamrock's personality into wrestling. So, so they tried to make it seem like some of the other wrestlers had some of these skills, so then he could step in and show them how it was really done, so to speak. So it was, I can't remember the guy. They were making a push for an older guy that was in uh, NWA for a long time. They, they thought, this was, Brock, the Brawl for All in WWF was the one event where they had, it was fighting. It was fighting. It was mixed martial arts. They yeah. fought, yeah. for real. Yeah. And okay. they thought, okay. this guy, Dr. Dr. Death Steve Williams, that's who it was. That's it. Yeah. it was, and I trained with him in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. Long story short, you know what they call Tough Enough? Well, I used to go to Stanford yes. every month, and we used to other. They used to test Edge Christian all these. And Doctor Death, I remember that's where I met him, because he was still trying to make a career of it, and he's going after his second knee surgery. Anyways, long story short, he was the closest guy they had that really could fight, and they yeah. tried to put him in with Kenny. But poor Doctor Death, he was like me. He did a full football career, and he was at the end of his wrestling career. I remember his hamstrings used to tear every time he wrestled so badly that his his hamstrings would be constantly purple. And I'm just yeah. like, is this really worth it? But anyways, that's how I met Dr. Death. And he was a guy they use as an intricate tool to bring the the, the realness uh, to, to WWF. So they did this brawl for all, thinking yeah. he, Dr. Death was going to win because he had actual fighting experience. And it was, and it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bar, it ended up being Bart Gunn knocked yeah. him out. Yeah, and yeah. So, uh, Vince McMahon thought it was a good idea for the next pay-per-view to have Bart Gunn fight Butterbean. 
Yeah, that's true. And that's Butterbean, true. Butterbean said, you sure you want me to do this? Because I'm, I'm an actual fighter. And yep. you, you got this guy who just, he won your, an amateur boxing event, essentially was what it was. Yep. And uh, they said, no, 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 we want it. Bart, Bart Gunn is going to give you a good fight. And Butterbean basically ended Bart Gunn's wrestling career. He knocked him yep. out in one punch and that, that was it. So, but were, were you, were you part of that? Would, it, would that have been something you would have taken part of had they asked you? Uh, that was after, that would have been after me. After, uh, okay. That was, uh, that timing wise, uh, I remember that happening, but it was after I was on my way out the door. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wild stuff. Cause I remember saying to myself, what, this is perfect for me. And, yeah. uh, yeah, by that point, uh, I had already, uh, I think over, overstood my welcome, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Are we done with the wrestling Pierre? Uh, you know what? We're we'll done. Need another. We'll need you to come back. Let me just let me just do this very quickly because some of the better times I did have wrestling was when I was in Memphis, Tennessee. I did Jerry the King Lawler's territory. It's called Grand Prix Wrestling. I wrestled the King. I wrestled against him. I kidnapped. What was his girlfriend's name? Biz Kitty or whatever. I remember I kidnapped her and she had to travel around with me for two days. And the, the chick hated me. You know, she just wanted to be like with 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 with. <laughs> With the king, and anyways, I remember doing a match in a in a uh, dealership, a car dealership parking lot against Jerry the King Lawler, and it drew so much attention. There was a car accident, and a lady lost her leg. So oh, we're wrestling. <laughs> talk about ivory. So we're wrestling, and all of a sudden, it's like everybody leaves the match. Like literally, the crowd just walked up and left. I'm like, what's going on here, man? And you could see there was an accident, and then the helicopter lands, and this poor lady apparently lost her leg because they were trying to watch the wrestling while they were driving their cars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, that wow. was ten months of my life. Um, we did live uh, re- live wrestling every Saturday morning, and um, Power Pro Wrestling. I wrestled Kurt Angle there. Um, some of the guys, any of the guys they bring through. It was one of the last um, established. Established territories that Vince allowed to be around because he bought everybody else out, not realizing that was going to be the end for him too. Because he's got no farm system, you know. There's no place for these guys to learn how to wrestle anymore. Um, so that being said, yeah, that ten months there that got you really ready for. That's where they put all their guys before they would bring them up because you did live TV and you traveled around and they had a lot of guys that would rat on you if you were bad. So they, they had a good chance to 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 keep a. Keep a good eye on you, too. That's wild. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. All right. We're going to go out to this segment. And actually, Glenn, we're going to, I'm going to go out on a song. You got to tell me if it's right because I Googled it. I tried to find your, your wrestling walk-up song. So we're going to go out to that. Okay. We're, we're actually going to split up this into a couple of episodes uh, because sure. of the follow-up questions and whatever, and we'll give our listeners a, a quick break. Uh, but uh, you got to give me the, the thumbs up if this is the right one. If it's the wrong one, we're still going out to it, but I'll try I'll, and find I'll, the real I'll, one. I'll know in the first two licks. All right, here we go. Let me know. That's it, man. Yes. This was made because back then you couldn't take somebody else. You had to pay for somebody else's music. Yeah. Oh, you getting? Hey, here he goes. We're getting, somebody had a synthesizer, and that's all you needed. And uh, but you had to have your own music, and everybody wanted your intro music, and they cue it up. And then if it got to the point when they could hear those couple, two, three licks, and they knew who it was, and any of the good wrestlers, you could see they'd they play the music. The guy wouldn't even be close to coming in, and the crowd would pop. That's when you knew you had a good song. Ah, all all right. part of the package, baby. All part of the package. <clears throat> 
We're going to go out to this, and we'll be, well, for the listeners, we'll be back next episode. Uh, Glenn, we'll be back in two seconds. Sure.